Hello and welcome to Credit Shift News and Update. This week I'm still Paul Sweeney, co-founder and chief strategy officer here at Webio, and today I am joined again by my co-host, fellow founder and CEO Cormac O'Neill. Good morning, Paul. Uh, and yes, I'm still um, uh, CEO and, and co-founder, and today I am coming to you from sunny Wexford. Uh, for those of you who don't know where Wexford is, it's the southeast of Ireland. Um, great city. I think Wexford is a city at this stage. Um, famous for its strawberries. For those of you who, who uh, are, are like your strawberries, Wexford is the place to come. So yeah, I've done my bit for the tourist board down here. Good man. Well, today we will be exploring some of the new recent events, stories and reports in the credit industry. Um, but before we do that, Cormac, uh, it was a big week here for us at Webio with our first ever in-person get-together. It struck me that a lot of companies are now either remote first or hybrid. And I was wondering if it might be useful just to kick off with some reflections on our first get together as a, God, is it six year old company now? Yeah. Yeah. No, you good. Good. Good show, Paul. Yeah. So as, as, as people who listen to this may know that Webio is a hundred percent remote, we, uh, our team is, uh, stretched across, I think, five different locations, five different countries, um, a great blend of, of nationalities and, and cultures on our team. So as um, as you rightly said, we had our, our first get-together um, in the uh, Activity Centre in Carlingford. So a shout-out to everybody in the Activity Centre. It was a fantastic day, absolutely fantastic day. Um, it was just great for the team to meet each other, to see each other in in person. It was great to see the banter uh, between the individuals um, on the team and to see them get to mix and, and, and meet other members of different areas of our business, whether it's tech, you know, our sales team, marketing team, ops team, product team, seeing them all, um, you know, the mix and mingle and chat was fantastic. So I would clearly highly recommend that remote um, companies attempt to do this. We will certainly look to do it on a regular basis um, from here on out. I think it adds um, it adds huge value. I mean, it's expensive uh, to bring everybody to Ireland. There's no doubt about that. And when you're a, a small startup, uh, these things matter. But I think we will definitely get a lot of value uh, out of it, um, for sure. Uh, we found out who could sing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we we had a good good sing song in the in the pub afterwards. So we found out the singers on our team and those who um, for for, for, for such a vocals. for such a diverse and really um, multinational team here. I think we put an uncommon emphasis on being able to hold a tune in a bar. Um, so maybe some aspects of founding culture do hold through. Okay, let's dive into some of the details here. So. In general industry news, food inflation decelerated for a sixth consecutive month, dropping from 99 to 8.8% between September and October, according to the British Retail Consortium's latest inflation figures. Non-food inflation, meanwhile, fell by a percentage point, going from 44 to 3.4%, meaning non-food inflation is at its lowest since September 2022. Overall, inflation decelerated by a percentage point in October, 
dropping from 6.2% to 5.2%, making this the fifth consecutive month it has fallen in a row. It also means shop price growth is at its lowest since August 2022. FCA Financial Lives Research found that 14% of adults in the UK, or 7.4 million people, unsuccessfully attempted to contact one or more of their financial service providers. 7%, that's 3.6 million people, were able to contact one of their financial service providers, but could not get the information or support they wanted. The FCA also found that adults with one or more characteristics of vulnerability were more likely to report that customer support services did not help them at all. 20% of those with low financial resilience and 20% of those with low capability reported that provider communications did not help at all, compared with 12% of those with no characteristics of vulnerability. Cormac, I know that this topic has really resonated with many people you met at the recent vulnerability event in the UK, but these numbers are still appalling. Um, What do you say? Uh, yeah, no, I'll say a bit on that for sure. Just a, a quick one on the inflation. That's good to see those those numbers starting to turn. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there um, are hoping, myself included, that we've gotten to the the end of the the rate hike and that the next move um, somewhere probably in late 2024 will be in the opposite direction down. So um, that's good to see that. Back to the vulnerability uh, and those uh, stats you read out there, Paul. Um, at the uh, vulnerability event that, that I was at there a few weeks back, um, what was really noticeable was the genuine um, willingness of people at the event to engage and inquire around how AI could help them uh, in this whole area of vulnerability and, and um, help them their customers. Like if I go back 12 months, yes, there was a bit of interest, but you know, not real engagement on it, where this year now completely different. Um, People wanting to know how they can use AI and, and AI tools for number one, to identify customers that are, are vulnerable and get them to a resolution path as quick as they possibly can. Right, So that's a real willingness to engage on that. And from talking to people, what they're looking for is how do I put more knowledge into the hands of A, my customers to maybe vulnerable, uh, and B, my team, my contact center team um, on the back end, how do I arm them? How do I use artificial intelligence to give them answers at the point that they're needed? And you know, this idea of a co-pilot that I think we spoke about previously on this call, um, Real, real, real willingness. It's a real challenge for our customers in how do I, how do I deal with these vulnerable customers? And they want, there's a genuine desire to do that because it's really beneficial to a, a company's brand if they can turn those stats around. And I think you used the word appalling, Paul, and I couldn't disagree with you on that. Um, so, so yeah, and look, we know that AI and artificial intelligence, particularly Gen AI, uh, can help our customers um, do a better job here. Right? We know that the tools are now there. We, we have them in our own platform ourselves. Um, whether it's identifying customers that are vulnerable or if it's just getting simple answers to customers really, really quickly, um, you know, we can do that today. Um, if customers want to use Gen AI elements of, of our product or any product, obviously I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what we do at WebView, but the tools are there to help. Uh, enterprises today. It's not, this isn't tomorrow's technology. It's here, it's here right now. Yeah. I, I just like to, to, um, I, I got some feedback from one of our listeners that it, they, 
appreciate the fact that we're working in this business and therefore can bring our own kind of experience to bear and our own flavor to this conversation. But I, I think that one of the things that we've done is we've realized that every company may have a slightly different interpretation of vulnerability and how they want to categorize it and how they want to rate vulnerabilities. So it is up to the companies. We can give them a framework, but the companies themselves have to define what falls into a vulnerability, uh, what they want to categorize as various levels of vulnerability, and then what they want to do um, with regards to choice structure and or conversation flows after that. And so it isn't like it's just completely automated out of the 10. You know, if you, you can get in there and fine tune this to your business. And I think that's going to be a really important point as as you scale this up. Um, you know, that fine tuning is going to be really important. Uh, that last resilient 10% of people who find themselves consistently, and we're going to come to some numbers on that in a while, that last 10%, really difficult to get into. And at scale, that's a really difficult, um, a really difficult problem to address. Okay, so moving on, section two, my favorite BNPL, fintech and related section, always gets me excited, the new and innovative things. Um, so research conducted by the UK's Financial Conduct Authority as part of its financial lives research indicates that people who have used BNPL were also almost twice as likely as those who haven't taken out a BNPL product to have increased the amount of debt on credit products over the last year and are more than twice as likely to have also used a high-cost credit product. In total, it found that 27% of UK adults, making up approximately 14 million people, have used a buy-now-pay-later product at least once in the last six months prior to January 2023. This is up from 17% who said they had used it in the preceding 12 months up to May 2022. Commenting on this, FCA Executive Director of Consumers and Competition, Sheldon Mills, said, Our research shows a significant increase in the use of buy now, pay later over the past year. The headline for me is still that buy now, pay later consumers are more than four times as likely to have missed a payment of a bill or credit commitment. The research has found. I, I just think that, I mean, our main, one of our early thesis here, Cormac, was that buy now, pay later bills would mount and that people would start to lose track of some of those payments. Um, or maybe I think what's emerging is that people are using this as another alternative form of credit on top of credit that they have elsewhere. It's just one more line, one more lifeline for them in many instances. Um, I think that 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 coming through, I think there just has to be more discipline in the buy now, pay later repayment programs and keeping people on track. Yeah, I think we, we spoke with this on, on our last one. Um, I'm in those stats. I'm one of those people who used the buy now, pay later um, in my last online purchase that I done just to try it out, see what it was like. And it's just the sheer ease at which you can get that credit is blew me away it you know you can you can buy items in a couple of clicks and buy now pay later um very little i don't know what happens in the background in terms of checking out um certainly from my experience i don't think anything happened in terms of checking out my credibility or my credit rating or anything got to do with that so the sheer ease of which you can get this credit and i agree i think people are 
are adding this and layering this on top of the credit they already have, um, whether it's credit card or, or loan. Um, and look, it's not on the face of it. It doesn't look big. Like it tends to be mostly smaller ticket items. Um, it's if you start doing it multiple times, and I think somewhere along the line we said that people have up to five or six buy now, pay later um, accounts. How do you keep track of that, right? So they're all coming out of your account at different times, a month and different amounts. You know, it does add up. You know, you could suddenly, if you're doing five or six of these, you could be paying out, you know, 500 quid a month um, on your buy now, pay later, depending on, on, on what you've done, you know. So definitely there needs to be more control over this. I think it's an obvious... Um uh, use case for a simple open banking where you can just move money from one account to another and, and set up standing orders and have recurring payments. It's, you know, it, it's because all this is manual on both parts that it becomes a problem. Um, what's required is just some smart automation on both sides of that and the problem kind of goes away. Let, let's just explore just one little further bit here. Um, and this is the situation doesn't get any better when you look at the USA. It, it kind of, doing this research hardly ever does. Americans racked up more than 100 billion in credit card interest last year and over 14 billion in late fees. Just let those numbers just sit with you for a second. 100 billion in interest and 14 billion in late fees. These kinds of numbers always kind of stun me with the scale of the issue. Around one in 10 credit card holders are in persistent debt where they end up paying more late payment fees and interest than on the principal itself. Okay. It's not hard to see how this can happen when interest rates are going up and real wages are going down and the cost of living is like obviously crushing. As usual, those with the lowest credit rating end up paying the bulk of those late payment fees. Even though consumers with deep subprime credit scores hold just 6% of card accounts, they generated 28% of all the late fees last year. By contrast, those with the highest credit scores generated 6% of late fee volume last year. So you can just do, you know, 4, 8, 12, 16, that's like, say, 3.5 billion in late fees for people on the lowest credit rating in the States last year. 3.5 billion was considered, you know, a lot of money when I was a kid. Um, well, we talk about this like as, um, you know, f- we say that late fees are a problem and people are, you know, late paying and that late paying has costs and the friction. But like it's to say that the cost of late payments and missed payments and not having arrangements in place just in the States is 14 billion. That's a phenomenal number. I mean, that's just a big deal. I know for some people that's going to be a small amount of money. Uh, Amazon's weekly revenue, but again, it 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 just um, it it just goes to show that there are still so many problems to fix in this industry. And we talk about small things like you know, oh, can we fix uh, the conversation between companies and customers to remove friction from credit and collections conversations and then you hear these kind of numbers and you go man this is a this is this is a huge disruptible market i mean you can't have um that kind of a number out there and not have 
disruption on the horizon. I, I just don't see it as possible. Uh, to quote Jeff Bezos again, your margin is my opportunity. And th- that's, that's not great revenue. Um, anyway, moving on and tied to it, um, in our section three new and interesting reports, I do like to bring people some reports that we come across during the week. We do a lot of research in our area. And I, I like to bring it forward because um, people who are in the credit industry all have their own strategic uh, planning to do and their strategic reviews and 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 that environmental um, trends. Uh, what what's happening is is key to that. And a new report from Accenture and Innovate Finance in the UK shows that UK fintech firms are making some kind of social economic impact. In terms of the fintech's overall contribution to the economy, almost all of those assessed are contributing to the UK's economic productivity and growth, with the remaining 2% uh, only absent due to the, the, the early stage and infancy. Um, so they're, they're making a contribution economically. In terms of peace, justice and accountability, over a third of UK fintechs, that's 36%, are delivering products and services that address the goals of data security, compliance and using technology to thwart organised crime and fraud. And I found that very interesting and we'll maybe come back to it. In terms of delivering on the levelling up agenda, so in the UK that's kind of regional development, the fintech sector has led the char- charge on setting up regional centres to access more talent and is boosting regional economies. And with regards increasing financial inclusion, which is what we were just talking about, a quarter of UK fintechs are having a significant impact on reducing inequality by providing greater access to financial services such as innovative lending products and youth banking services. And I thought this was a really interesting report, Cormac, because it's easy to, you know, we all have to focus very clearly on our own companies, removing of frictions and adoption cycles and upsell cycles and the business of running a business. But when you stand back and see, you know, what sort of social economic impact fintech businesses might be making, it's a really interesting framing when you remove financial crime and fraud from interactions, you allow people to trade, you allow people to, you know, get their own businesses and, and take themselves out of one level of prosperity to another. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's often easy to miss that point. No, it is, Paul, I agree. And I'm getting a warm, fuzzy feeling uh, listening to those uh, stats from the report in terms of the impact that fintech uh, is having. Um, it doesn't surprise me for the very reasons you just said. You know, look, fraud is is a huge problem. It's a huge challenge out there. And it's only digital fraud, financial fraud. It's only getting bigger. I mean, not a day goes by that I don't get a text, multiple emails from somebody uh, trying to scam me. Right? That's just a given now. Right? So the fact that there are companies out there with missions to, uh, you know, take that out of society, that's a really, that's a really good thing, right? Um, and if we can crack that fraud side of it alone uh, through innovative fintech, you know, for me, that's a really good thing to do. Absolutely. 
Um, and that's just one area you know we've already spoken at length around vulnerability so we don't need to to, to go down that route again so you know, that's that's um an interesting it, angle on a report i haven't seen that yeah i i actually reached out to the authors of the report and congratulated them on it, it it's a really good job and I, i'd love to actually get them on the podcast um I, it just made me reflect on my own life where as a um an undergrad here at the University of Limerick in fourth year. Um, I needed to borrow £300 at that time from the bank to uh, get through the term. And I wasn't getting that money. Um, they just weren't approving that loan for me. And I, you know, there was no income in the house at that time. And that really put me in like the straits. I got through somehow, but like that just access to that 300 pounds could have stopped me graduating, could have stopped me finalizing my degree, getting my first job, getting into the economy. And I, I think that, you know, we underestimate the, um, the impact of, of being nickel and dime to death. Uh, whereas for the want of a little bit of financing, you can get to the next level of your life. Um, so I, 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 I think that these kind of services can be transformative to people. Now, it's not all upside. On the downside, the report found that remittance fees are still too high. The report estimates that people in the UK spent 304 million more than they should have if they had price transactions at the UN target of less than 3%. Now, again, who's sending remittances? You know, it, it's again, people who are probably in the lower income side of, of things. They're probably fresh to the, uh, to the economy, sending money home to support people in their home economies. Ireland has benefited from that for, for many, many years from the 40s, 50s and 60s. Um, and, and so again, this is just another example of, uh, of, uh, of penalising those probably least able to afford it. The FCA provides flexible guidelines for making verification of customer identities, but this report also finds that it can lead to exclusionary practices, deepening distrust and inequality. The same can be said of lending solutions that have traditionally relied upon credit history reports. And we've commented on this in earlier credit shift updates where there are now some innovative solutions out there that allow people to bring their credit history from their home countries in Europe to the UK. Um, there are other ways of calculating, quick calculating or soft calculating credit to allow people enter a process. Um, so I think um, worth exploring more on how basically collecting identity information could be exclusionary or how that might be done in a more sensitive manner. Um, and the proportion of the UK fintech workforce that is female is only 28% which is far behind the 44% of the UK financial services workplace in general. At the leadership level, women hold only around 10% of all fintech board seats and less than 20% of fintech executive positions overall. So still plenty of work to do there to increase the level of uh, inclusion there. And I think uh, I'm trying to reach out to a couple of um women in fintech at the moment to try and get someone on our podcast to talk about all things fintech and just to uh, just increase the level of representation we have here. And while there is plenty to dig into in this report, well, you know, what I really love about it is um, the framing of fintech as um, an enabler. 
you know, being able to send money safely across the world, being able to make it safe for people to receive money, um, the way it makes it easier for people to trade. Uh, these are all like enablers of, of trade. And I think we've seen in Ireland the benefit of international trade, the benefit of being part of that international community has really been a transformative influence in Ireland for the last 20 years. Uh, any thoughts on, on, on this or anything else that struck you from the week, Cormac? Yeah, no, uh, I agree with what you just said there in terms of um, that report. I certainly want to uh, download it and go through it in depth myself um, to get more detail on it. Uh, and uh, look, the majority of, of companies and startups in fintech are genuinely trying to solve problems that are out there. Look, we're not perfect. We recognize that. There are areas that we can improve on, particularly the the gender balance that you mentioned there. You know, that's something certainly within Webio that we actively look at. And I'm sure there are many other um, companies out there too that are are very conscious of that. Um, But look, on the whole, I think, uh, uh, repeating myself here, but, you know, fintechs and, and more and more startups that come in, uh, are genuinely looking to solve problems and pains that they've probably experienced themselves um, and they can see other people struggling with. And, you know, that's, for me, that's certainly a, a good thing. Indeed. Um, well, I, I think, Cormac, if uh, there's nothing else, I'll try and wrap it up this week. Uh, it was another great roundup of news and reports. Again, all the reports and articles referred to in this week's episode are in the show notes. We look forward to you joining us again next week for more Credit Shift updates. Do check out our Credit Shift interview with Terry Franklin from Qualco, an interesting conversation there on the use of AI across our industry. And do subscribe and make sure you don't miss any of these great value episodes. Thank you for joining us again this week. Thank you. 